Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. This is a podcast that believes that progressive politics can change the world. I'm your host for today's show, Stefan Rolnick, and there are only three things that are certain in this life, death, taxes, and the Labour Party fudging its Brexit position. Here to help us make sense of our Schrodinger's Brexit policy, the European elections, and what's next for the anti-Brexit movement is Richard Brooks from For Our Future's Sake, a student-led anti-Brexit campaign. Thanks for coming on, Richard. How are you doing? Thank you very much for having me. Very well, thank you. And we're also joined, of course, by our podcast regular, Stephanie Lloyd. How are you doing? Anytime. Anytime, Stefan, for you. <laughs> <laughs> right, Richard, let's start with you. So, can you just kick us off, first of all, by telling the listeners who might not have heard of For Our Future's Sake, or FFS, if that's possible, who FFS are how you started and what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, the story of FFS, like all good stories, starts in a pub. Um, And there were a couple of people, including my two fellow co-founders, Amanda Chetman-Cowson and Jason Arthur, who were in kind of January time last year in a pub lamenting about the state of Brexit, uh, to be honest, the Labour Party, the lack of diversity within the Brexit debate, the lack of young voices in the Brexit debate. Um, and I kind of woke up with a fuzzy head the next morning with a text <laughs> from one of them saying, well, if, if someone was going to do this, why don't we have a pop? Um, so we started talking about it a bit more seriously and then launched For Our Future's Sake uh, in March of last year. And it's been a bit of a wild ride since. In, in terms of what we do, we are quite avowedly a youth and student-led campaign calling for a people's vote. Um, we broadly do three things. One is mobilise young people and youth-led organisations to take political action. That might be writing a letter, uh, that might be meeting your MP, that might be signing a petition or going on a march. Um, the second thing we do is we uh, uh, do the media piece, which I'm proud to say I'm a part of. And the main goal really there is to make sure that diverse young people from non-traditional backgrounds in the media uh, debate right now uh, take part in traditional media platforms. Uh, and the third and final thing is to influence kind of political parties on their, and politicians in general on their stance on Brexit exclusively but not specifically the Labour Party (laughs) and I'm quite interested what's that journey been like trying to introduce that diversity of voices in the Brexit debate has that been a difficult mould to break listen yeah it has been really difficult and like there there are two things with it one is the geography of it so uh, we're really proud to say that we're based in student unions and youth-led organisations all across the UK so when you're trying to uh, get say a young working class person from Newcastle or a young woman from Northern Ireland the reality is is that the way in which our media kind of is constructed is very you know and it's not a new thought but it's very London-centric but in a very practical position 
the amount of times we've had kind of media bids that have been accepted and then and then rejected because the journalist couldn't get the train from London to wherever or that uh, the Skype wasn't working or so on and so forth, really difficult. The, the other thing really, and sometimes it's about holding your own side to account as well, is that, you know, the amount of times we've had uh, a young woman of colour, for instance, booked on for, I don't know, pick a platform like Channel 4 News, and then they get bumped at the last minute for... Uh, a more uh, well-known voice who often always tends to be kind of a middle-class old white man on our side of the debate um, is also countless as well. So I can't pretend it's not been a struggle, but <laughs> we like to believe anyway that we've made a bit of a dent. You started off, um, as you said, all good things um, are decided on in the pub. And I'm interested to know kind of what came before that for you personally. You know, you had that kind of you were lamenting the state of politics, but how? why was politics important to you in the first place? It's actually interesting reflecting on that question now with uh, kind of what's happened to today with um, uh, Nigel Farage and kind of Milkshake Gate, because um, essentially in 2010, I was too young to vote in the general election. I was about a month or two too young. So I went sure enough, You've already made me feel old. Thank you, Richard. <laughs> um, so I was, I was, uh, I did not mean to, Steph, um, but I, I was too young. Um, but in my, some, in my year group, uh, some of the kids in kind of post-16 were old enough. And I kind of walked into our post-16 common room in Dover, where I'm from, and said to these kind of people who I'd grown up with for the last seven or eight years, oh, like, did you vote today? And I'd already, I'd already sort of become the the kid, the really annoying, I don't know if you two can empathise with this, the annoying kid who like, liked politics. No, I actually wasn't at all. <laughs> no? Genuinely, I wasn't. Not even slightly. If you'd have... If if you'd have met like teenage me and told me what I would be doing now, I'd have literally laughed in your face <laughs> and then gone to the pub and not talked about politics. <laughs> I think for me, it's emphasis on the annoying bit rather than the politics. Bit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it does not surprise me that Steph is cooler than both of us. Um, uh, but was sort of, sort of already like was interested in politics. And some of these, as I say, these, these kids who I'd grown up with and they were like, I'm going to vote for UKIP. I'm going to vote for the BNP, a couple of them. And I like lost my mind a little bit. I was like, how could you... How could you do that? And why would you do that? And spent kind of two or three periods arguing about that. And, and in the end kind of left it a bit frustrated. I'd hopefully changed the minds. Um, but then kind of finished that and was like, oh, politics is all right. Like, I, might, <laughs> I might get involved in this. And then kind of from there was really fortunate. Like, I was the first person in my family to go to uni and then got involved in my student union and the rest is history. How much, so I'm just going to chip in on this bit. Mm. How much do you, were you surprised by the fact that the kind of main people's vote campaign, what came out of kind of open Britain and that initial mm remain campaign really kind of took you guys in as something that you know were you quite shocked by that in that sense of just how much they really did value that kind of young voice and to be fair like a, a voices that hadn't traditionally come through kind of main political parties and their mm. youth wings and things like that was that quite a shock to you yeah a, a little bit and it wasn't really because of anything that anyone in kind of the people's vote campaign did or said but obviously you know you have an idea of like what politics is like and who conducts it and when we uh, kind of went to the people's vote campaign and said we're doing this thing could we could we be a part could we work together what, what's the deal here they're actually really excited about it because they there is a level of self-reflection that I don't think lots of people who were around kind of last time in 2016 involved this time get credit for which is that they knew that they weren't diverse enough in terms of their spokespeople and their thinking last time they knew they didn't have enough young voices or increased turnout that they wanted to so they were quite interested in an idea and sort of a philosophical sort of way uh, and then um, brought us in and then from there I think hopefully anyway we sort of proved our worth in terms of activating young people and doing kind of media things and then we, we, we very much feel a part of the team FFS and it's quite exciting. And what's that been like the kind of journey of engaging young people have you mm. found have you learned a lot have you found it easier than you thought harder than you thought? Um, that's a very good question. It, 
I think we've found it easy insofar in that there is a, and obviously I'm going to generalize here, but when you go to kind of campuses or, uh, you know, universities or colleges or apprenticeship providers or whatever, there is a widespread acknowledgement that Brexit is A, going very badly, um, and B, that the people in charge of it um, have messed it up. Um, so that's not a difficult conversation start in a way that lots of campaigns that I've been involved in the start have been. Uh, obviously, the most difficult bit from that point is then the next bit on the, you know, the engagement ladder, which is getting them to take action. Some of that can be difficult. And actually, the thing, the main difference really, actually, is that there was a report by My Life Marseille who are involved in kind of the Brexit debate in a nonpartisan way in like uh, over a year ago now. And they talked about young people being devastated pessimists. They hated what was happening, but they didn't think anything could change. And actually, the idea that Brexit isn't inevitable, that a people's vote is something that can happen is, is the biggest difference I would suggest with young people a year ago. They feel like that this is a, you know, Steph and I were talking before, uh, lots of people thought that a people's vote was a, and quite correctly, a kind of moonshot of a political campaign. It was a Hail Mary. And that's correct. It feels more achievable now than it did six months ago, nine months ago, a year ago. And that devastated pessimist thing, do you get the sense that actually what you're tapping into isn't just about Brexit? It's this generational thing. And I find it really interesting you're talking about 2010 and the debates you're having in the common room about Nigel Farage and you look at this, you look you on Twitter today. I was organising, I was organising the protest in 2010 for all the student protests when it first started kicking off. So. Yeah, and right, and you and you and you look at this landscape and you look at the debates and you think, oh, we're still here. I mean, is that what has that been? Is is that something that you found quite difficult to kind of you know stay motivated and stay hopeful with when you look at engaging with these young people who are actually saying exactly the same things that we were saying back then or? To a certain extent, it's actually, um, and it's picking up on a point that kind of Steph said earlier, was like around kind of traditional party platforms. One of the brilliant things, and it's sort of a sad indictment to a certain extent, but I think the People's Vote campaign, and I like to believe FFS to a certain extent, has been a home for a lot of young people uh, who feel a sense of disenfranchisement with politics for lots of reasons. And Brexit is obviously the thin end of the wedge right now, but everything from climate change to inequality, et cetera, et cetera. And that's a home for where those people are right now. And uh, for lots of them, for lots of different and legitimate reasons, they can't get involved in or they don't feel they can get involved in different political parties and more traditional campaigning. So it's definitely a wide sense, widespread sense of disenfranchisement. But hopefully anyway, and this is sort of a longer term view, is that, you know, you've got a, a whole generation of young activists now um, who have been radicalised by the Brexit debate and who therefore will, you know, there's been a lot of crossover between... FFS activists and Extinction Rebellion and then the, whatever the next thing is, you know, who campaigning on the black attainment gap or so on and so forth. Like there is a nucleus there of really exciting, interesting, diverse young activists that I think have hopefully found their home in this campaign. Well, moving on to what's happening, like you say, on the ground right now, we can only avoid it for so long. Let's talk about the European <laughs> elections, I guess. And I guess we should start at home. So Steph, Jeremy Corbyn was on Andrew Marr yesterday. I think that's a good place to start. What did he say, first of all? Well, it was quite interesting. So when when he was, they kind of had, obviously over the last couple of weeks, they've had lots of different leaders uh, as they have to on the Mar show. And it was quite interesting because kind of Andrew Mar kicked off and was like, you know, what, what do you guys think? And he was like, well, you know, we should get a deal and then we should take it back to the public. And kind of everyone was about, Excuse me. Excuse me, Jeremy. We've been, we've been waiting years for you to be saying this. And but then he kind of almost started to roll back on some of that stuff almost immediately anyway. And and then you kind of saw lots of his spokespeople come out afterwards going, oh, that's not what he said. What he actually said was what party conference said, which, you know, for all of both myself and all of the listeners of this podcast is burned into our brains in terms of, you know, it's an option, it's on the table. 
And that was still very much where he was. I mean, it was a kind of classic Jeremy interview in lots of ways when it came to those kind of set piece uh, set piece media sets that he does. He was quite defensive. He was quite agitated by it. He doesn't like doing it. It's not his comfort zone. And it was quite difficult for him because there is quite clearly in the PLP a split, even when you look at, you know, the shadow cabinet, he was being asked questions on, you know, well, Tom Watson says it's a Remain and Reform Party. Barry Gardner says it's a Leave Party. Who's correct? And he's like, oh, I can't really say neither. And I can't really say both. And, you know, and, and this is the classic problem with Labour currently at the moment is it is that utter ambiguity between what our policy is. It's trying to sit on the fence and it worked in 2017 is not quite clearly working anymore because people are far more aware of this issue than they were. This isn't a general election. It isn't something where other issues will become bigger than Brexit, which is what they very successfully did in, in 2017. This is an issue where it is only Brexit that matters and they are being they are being punished by that. So it was a kind of, you know, it was a pretty generic Jeremy interview in that sense where, you know, it doesn't actually like being asked questions. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> I mean, that, that thing about, you know, Brexit is what is in front of us. It goes back to that thing that, that brilliant line that Jess Phillips had about, you know, you know, it's what's in front of us right now, and yeah. whether you like it or not. And I think a lot of people have made the point that um, one of the things that Jeremy and the leadership team have tried to do in this election, which I think is important, is to kind of set this in the wider context of where we sit mm. right now. And that's a really important thing to do. But I think one of the points has been missed is that, this idea that you can kind of just usher this soft Brexit across the line and then we can stop talking about it mm. as if when you make Brexit happen, that's not going to be like a project for like decades to come and that we can just kind of move on completely. And this is the problem, right? Because they aren't wrong in the sense that what you can't do is only appeal to one or the other. You can't just go, I don't care about 48% of the country and I don't care about 52% of the country. Like if you want to be a party of government and a party that unites a country... You can't do that. Like you can't actually just say, I do not care. But what they what they fail to do is the next stage of that, which is actually how they then start to bring people together. Because by saying, we'll fudge a Brexit that no one likes and that no one wants and isn't actually really particularly achievable and won't go through the House of Commons is just another lie to people again. And that's the problem is they know it is. If they were to turn around and say, look, this started with the people and it has to end with the people because we believe there were lies that were told at the last referendum, but we believe that there has been a serious debate that's happened since and we need to continue with that debate and you need to be informed enough to make decisions based on fact and reality, which is now where we are rather than what we think Brexit might be. We know what it is. And then that's to make that decision. And that's the problem. It's the utter lack of leadership from the Labour Party that is punishing them at the moment. And it is that ability to go, we want to take people with us. Yes, fine. How? And that's the part they miss constantly when it comes to this debate. Um, Rich, what did you make of it? Because I wonder, because you've been in a similar position to us in the sense that we've been, you know, pushing and going up and down on this emotional journey of thinking <laughs> we've got a public vote and not quite sure. And, you know, Barry Gardner says something ridiculous and we're back at square one. Um, firstly, what did you make of what Corbyn had to say? Very, very similar to Steph. And the, and the only thing really I would add is that there is a... Uh, and I don't know if it's deliberate or um, something, uh, something entirely different, uh, unconscious, but watching literally every time that uh, uh, Jeremy speaks now uh, on Brexit, all, all I see that happened is like this weird counter-briefing. You can watch it play out in your timeline where I watched a journalist from The Independent on Sunday say, this is really significant. He's come out in support of a people's vote on kind of all any, any agreed Brexit deal. And then watched, I think, Kevin Foster from Politics Home say, 
briefing from Labour Party spokesman, who we, who we know though, who that is saying, this hasn't changed anything. So it's sort of a real, there, there's a real sense of frustration because I think Steph's right insofar in that obviously you have to unite a country and there are lots of different ways of doing that and setting it within the context. But I do think that the, the real lack of leadership and the sense that our party's leadership isn't being straight with the electorate is what's absolutely killing us more than actually w- which side of the coin we, we happen to sit on at any given time. And from your point of view, is there a danger that this could, you know, disenfranchise a generation of young activists? This kind of toing and froing, I know as somebody who on the weekends is trying to get people out mm-hmm. to knock doors, having to go and put that post on, you know, your constituency Facebook group saying, come out and knock doors just after Barry Gardner's been on Radio 4 is kind of quite a difficult thing to do. Does this feeling of chaos and not really knowing where they stand are you seeing a potentially disenfranchising effect on the people you're trying to turn out? Yeah, I mean, both in terms of, the, you know, the wider young people, there is a sense and you know, watching people go through the journey from 2015 to 2019 now of young people being quite enthused about kind of Jeremy Corbyn and his vision, lots of them, um, uh, and talking about kind of radical change and transformational change in society and watch people go through the process because of, you know, his popularity was always argued that it was based on uh, both his kind of lifelong commitment as an activist, the fact that he listen to the membership and the fact that he was uh, honest straight talking right and brexit is almost uniquely kind of taken away all three of the all three of those legs of that it's the story. first time he feels like a politician yeah. of which he's spent his life campaigning against absolutely um and it's one of the reasons why and you know we've got obviously the elections on thursday and you know there is a reason labor are sinking in the polls and there is a reason that people like the brexit party and the lib dems are doing much better mm-hmm. and it is that clarity of message and it is people know when you are fudging things and you know the brexit party is pretty simple right they are the brexit party and they're a one-man band of nigel farage who for all of his many 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 flaws has the ability to play the game spin the media as much as possible and tap into people's worst fears and nightmares and exploit them in a way to gain electoral success it's literally what he spent his entire political career doing what you are seeing with Labour is not the ability to go out and inspire any level of hope on this. They just want to hide from it because it is the one thing that divides the party. Well, it divides more to the point, the leadership from the party. And that is what he has never had to deal with as a leader of the party. And it is the one thing that will break him in terms of of how it works if he continues to keep doing this fudge. And I'm glad you mentioned the Brexit party because that is very much the uh, xenophobic elephant in the room in this conversation. You mentioned they're doing really well. Um, <laughs> I don't know which one of you wants to take this question because it's a tough one. But <laughs> Go on then. Do we know how to beat them? Because <laughs> I'm really scared. I don't think, I, I mean, I think there's people who have made the argument well and will come on and talk about Gordon Brown, um, who's been very vocal about this very recently. But are you seeing any signs of people working out exactly how to kind of take on Nigel Farage and you're not allowed to talk about milkshakes as well. <laughs> that, is, that is one thing that's off the table. I love a vanilla, personally. <laughs> I wouldn't waste it. Um, banana and salted caramel, I hear. Oh, no, banana. I'd throw that over him in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> but the difference, I, I mean, it, yes, there is a way to beat him and it's through by actually showing a level of leadership. And, you know, if you think of, and, you know, we had Jess Phillips as the kind of keynote at our conference a couple of weeks ago. The thing that she has the ability to do, and it's what he has the ability to do, but she does it for reasons of good and not bad, unlike here, is she actually feels like a real person. And people are, and I think it's the big difference between our generation and I think the wider 
population as well. But I think particularly kind of our generation of politics, I am so bored of seeing people in suits behind lecterns. Like I'm so bored of the set piece, overly polished kind of front page newspaper politician. It's just boring. And it is really transparent and we know that it doesn't work. And the world around us has totally changed and we need to feel a connection to people now um, as people rather than just as these kind of, you know, pinups of what's been put forward. So, you know, you need a politician first that has a personality and has the ability to actually appear to be a human being. And you need someone who you can respect, even if you don't agree with. And that is the difference at the moment is even if I don't agree with Jeremy, which I don't on a lot of things, which I don't think is a surprise for anyone, There are times where I still at least respect that that is his position and where he's come from and that that has been a consistent position for his life. The problem is, is his constant position he's had up until now on the European Union is that we should leave until he became leader of the Labour Party. And then he had to switch it for no reason other than he knew he was leading a Remain party and it wouldn't go well even with his own supporters. There's no respect in that because... It is utterly transparent in terms of his disdain for the European Union, his disdain for the Brexit issue. Emily Thornberry herself says it's something he's just not that bothered about. It's just not really his thing. And, you know, you also need someone who has the ability to give a narrative of hope and and stop that fear that has totally consumed politics. Now, is that an easy thing to do? Absolutely not. There's a reason why currently no one is actually doing it. But there are people out there who have the ability to do it. But the problem is, is currently we are mostly led our political institutions in this country by people who are unfortunately the exact opposite of most of those things. You look at Theresa May and you look at Jeremy Corbyn, he might be very, very personable in lots of ways. But as Richard has said, on this issue, it breaks all of his all of his kind of, you know, plus points in terms of how people see him. And, and the only thing I'd add to that is that when you talk about, you know, we're talking about populism, not just here, but across the, uh, you know, across Western democracies, actually, in general, mm. the thing that I always find really interesting is you look at kind of his stump speech, right? Nigel Farage's stump speech over and over again. It's not really just Brexit anymore, is it? It's, it's This is about democracy, it's about mm-hmm. trust, it's about betrayal. And as Steph says quite rightly, it's kind of fashioning a narrative, but for evil purposes as opposed to good. The reality is, is that on pretty much every other issue, apart from Brexit and that democracy is a good thing, Nigel Farage is on the wrong side mm. of pro- public opinion in kind of the most basic straight up and down polling that you could do. Just the reason why, the minute you ask him a question on any of those things, he, loses he, his he mind. absolutely loses his mind. But <laughs> yeah, you're saying the British public doesn't want to privatise the NHS. No, no, of course not, right? They don't want to privatise the NHS. They, you know, the British public are fundamentally believe are good, decent people who don't believe in horrible things about uh, immigration all the way through to his stance on same-sex marriage all the way through to uh, gun control, right? Like the man is... Yeah, what, the we, man, need, yeah. what we need in Britain now is guns. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like, it's not... It's, these are not popular or uh, well-founded mm. positions in British society uh, anymore. And for some of them, they never were. And therefore, you can only come to the conclusion that he's, he's got a thing. He's he's on, on, in Brexit. He's fashioned a narrative around that and he's done so very successfully. I don't believe it would be... You know, it is a hard thing to create a strategic narrative that connects with people and a vision of hope. Um, but actually, in a very fundamental way, kind of where the public sits in terms of centre-left politics, I would suggest, most of these things aren't unpopular. They're very popular things. It's about how you can fasten them together and no one's done that yet. And just quickly before we move on to what's coming next, um, the speech Gordon Brown gave Mm -hmm. um, today about uh, the Brexit party and their finances and the kind of the setting that narrative of actually, you know, the Brexit party isn't 
for the people. It's actually, you know, taking advantage of the people for people's personal interests. Do you think we potentially have found a weak spot that will actually hopefully sink them in the polls? Well, I hope so. I mean, the, the, the difficult thing really is that um, the, the man's Teflon, right? So like he, he is not held by, in a similar way to Boris Johnson, kind of circa 2014, right? He's not, and, and Trump actually, kind of in the run-up to the presidential election, he's not seen as a politician and therefore is not held to the same standards. The thing that I think is a, so, so I don't think we're going to beat him by that. I, th- I think the way you beat him is exactly as how Steph's just articulated. I do think the thing that is a useful tool in the armory of having that conversation is that his whole thing is about, this is about democracy, this is about trust. And the reality is, is that the people who are usurping democracy aren't the people who are calling for a public vote on any agreed Brexit deal. The people who are doing that are the people who are circumventing our democratic norms and rules to ensure that they get a leg up above the opposition. And we will probably see more and more of that with it when it comes to Nigel Farage and the Brexit party, just because they don't believe they play by the same rules as everyone else because they've not been held to account for that yet. And they just don't care. Yeah. And that's the difference is they don't care that they're not playing by the same rules. Whilst everybody's still going, oh, let's be really well behaved. No, that's not how we do things. They're like, okay, fine, whatever, but we're already going to go and do it. We've already done it. <laughs> so, you know, that is a, it is a different game now in terms of how politics works and how it's played. But also, I mean, you know, there is when you look at this and you look at the reasons why lots of this has happened in our politics, there is also a responsibility to people who allowed this referendum to take place in the first place because it was never, you know, not only on the terms that it did, but in the way that it did with the unaccountability of how it happened and all because of the fear of an internal party squabble really and, and trying to end that in a way that they thought was safe. And there are there is a huge amount of responsibility that lies on the people that went before this. And also, we just stop doing referendums after this. I'm happy <laughs> for one more, right? I'm happy to settle the score and kind of finish this loop and, and, and close that off. But they don't fit in our constitution. I, mean, I know we don't technically have a constitution and this is also a thing. But like, you know, one of the fundamental problems of this is you have asked, it, none of this actually works or fits together. And that's what's led to it utterly breaking down in the way that it has. And you know, whilst you've got that, you've also got two parties who are basically very dysfunctional and not, and quite fractured in terms of how they work. And it's a very, it is a very dangerous time for our politics. And until people really start to pull together and actually have a sense of leadership and responsibility for what is currently happening in our country, it is perfect breeding ground for people like Nigel Farage. And obviously you've got Tommy Robinson in the Northwest as well. Um, and Hope Not Hate have been doing some amazing work. Lots of our activists, uh, progress activists are out this weekend in the Northwest um, trying to stop people like him getting elected. And that's the thing is like Nigel Farage is like the fluffy, acceptable face of all of this. The people that come behind him are the people who used to be members of the BNP and the EDL who are very happy to exploit this and start want to start kind of race wars in this country so you know i really my request for you know we're sat looking at parliament right now i'm like please sort it out (laughs) grow up and sort out (laughs) well speaking of you know parliamentary deadlock right after the advert break we'll be talking about the next round of parliamentary deadlock to look forward to i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70 percent of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites so if you're not looking on linkedin you'll miss out on great candidates like sandra start hiring professionals like a professional post your free job on linkedin.com people today hey it's ryan reynolds and i'm here with keith co-star of my upcoming film if only in theaters may 17th Do you want to tell people the big news 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so Steph, we've got um, more gridlock ahead of us to look forward to. Theresa May, it sounds like after the um, talks that were always going to break down, broke down, the word is that she's bringing back a withdrawal agreement bill for a vote on a second reading. Wab. Wab. Yeah. (laughs) Absolutely fabulous, as we uh, named our email the other day. (laughs) So that's not a meaningful vote. Is it? It's a different thing. So can we just pick apart how that's different? Okay, so I'm going to attempt to do this. And I'm sure someone at some point will tweet me and tell me that I'm wrong (laughs) because everybody is now an expert. But basically, this is the withdrawal agreement bill, so WAB. And it's different from the meaningful vote because it's not a meaningful vote on the whole Brexit deal and the um, political declaration statement that comes afterwards. The point of this is this is a legislative bill that is needed to pass in order to start unpicking all of that process and to put into place the bill, the kind of the kind of first part of her deal. So obviously, you know, they've, they've separated the two things out. So this isn't the future and how we will negotiate. This is how we would leave and the terms of which we'd start to do that on. Now, it's already kind of gone through its first stage of it. That's very easy. That's not really a thing. The second reading is when there's really a first proper vote on this kind of legislation. Now, basically what Theresa May is hoping for, she knows if she brings back meaningful vote for, she does not in any way hope in hell have the numbers to do that. What she's hoping for, and she just basically wants to, I assume, try and get something passed before she can say she's going to go, which we obviously now know is going to happen much sooner, likely over the summer. What she basically wants to do is try and get enough people to vote for this bill so it then goes into what they call like the parliamentary committee stage. Now, because the bill is what it is, that parliamentary committee will likely be the whole house um, in terms of how that works. So that will be, they normally take about six weeks or so to go through the committee stages. But it's basically where they go through it line by line by line and unpick that. So if you think it's been thrilling now, up until now, wait till it happens, wait till that might happen. But basically that doesn't then mean if the second reading passes that it has passed because you've then got the committee stages, you've then got, it then gets bounced backwards and forwards between the Lords as well. And then you'd have the third vote and the third kind of reading of it. And that would be the final kind of declaration of how that works. That's why it's different from the, the kind of meaningful votes because it's not a one vote and some amendments and how it works. This and um, Because the meaningful votes are on the motions of those of the declaration and also the kind of future statement and how that works. This is the legislation that is actually needed in order to make any of these things happen. Is that clear? I I don't know if it even is anymore. I don't know if it is. But basically, yeah, she's trying to get something passed in the hope that normally this would, you know, this would mean this would be a tiny victory for her and basically about as much of a victory as she could ever claim. 
The thing that would be very odd if this does pass though is it's very rare that something goes through all the way to the last stage and then falls. So if you're voting for something at the second reading of a bill, it's normally your intention that you agree with the premise of it, but there might be tiny things within it you want to tweak. So I think it is unlikely, it is highly unlikely that this will pass, but it's looking at coming back on the week of the kind of 3rd, 4th of June. God, if you listen carefully, somewhere you can hear Donald Tusk in Brussels just asking himself why he thought we would use this time wisely and get things done. Um, Richard, from your point of view, obviously you've got, you know, networks of activists that are trying to put pressure Mm -hmm. on those people in parliament to push for a final say. How is that shaping up here? Is that... Are you are you confident that, that you know you have that movement there in Parliament to make this case again? Because I guess this is going to be a kind of debate round. <laughs> I don't know what round round five, whatever it is. Is that is that debate really shaping up now? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I would uh, I would suggest that uh, Steph is absolutely right insofar in that it is unlikely to pass, and most people acknowledge it's very unlikely to pass. We would always caution against overconfidence in this regard. Um, not least, uh, you know, there's some interesting stuff going on, right? You've got parts of the ERG and the, and, the, and the right of the Tory party. I mean, David Davies voted for it, voted for the meaningful vote three last time and has said he will not vote for it this time because the ERG had a not amicable breakup over this last time and th- uh, that's some interesting stuff. The hope is that there are some Labour MPs in particular who, um, if there's a big offer, is the phrase that's being thrown around, uh, from the Prime Minister on workers' rights environmental protections uh, on parliament being more involved in the next stage of kind of the future political declaration and that will bring across enough labor rebels i don't think that will be the case sort of peaked uh, i saw a tweet today which is absolutely correct which is that sort of peaked theresa may that she had a bunch of negotiations which broke down and she's taken all of the things from those negotiations and then just pretended that people agreed and shut <laughs> them in what her offer is going to be anyway which is right um but we we do think that they're um, uh, there's a strong case, uh, you know, part of it is tell them again, we've tried this already, stop it. Part of this is, um, around the lack of clarity around the future political declaration and the blind Brexit argument that we've been making continually. So we are cautiously confident that this is something that will, uh, get voted down again, but I wouldn't underestimate the amount of pressure that MPs will be under from all different political parties and all parts of them to just get this done. Uh, and I don't think they will, but that'll be their hope. And those that group of Labour rebels that you mm-hmm. said that uh, you know might be tempted to vote mm-hmm. Theresa May's way, and you know you know it looks like they probably won't be. I think that's quite an interesting caucus of MPs because actually, from a public vote point of view, they're still that's quite an important group, not just in terms of the arithmetic, but in terms of a lot of them make really good points. People like Lisa Nandy, you know, making that point that actually, as you were saying earlier, Steph, we've got to kind of we do have to unite the whole country. We can't just you know divide in the hope that we can just get over the finish line. Um, how is that argument shape, shaping up? You know, what is the case that we are making to those MPs when we're trying to convince them not to go with the government and to come with us? So I, I think there's there's two arguments that we always make. One is that the constituencies that you represent, be it um, uh, kind of in the northwest and the northeast, which is where they're predominantly based, um, are going to be the most negatively impacted by this botched Brexit deal, right? The things that the legitimate grievances that your constituents had about feeling left behind, about economic stagnation, about um, uh, about the fact that you know it doesn't feel like the society works for them are not going to be solved by Brexit. We know that now. And actually, they're going to make them infinitely worse. That's one. The second is a bit more hard on the nose in terms of the politics of it, is that you know, you've been made a bunch of promises by this prime minister about workers' rights, about environmental protections, about investment in different parts of the UK. This prime minister is not going to be around to see the end of Love Island, let alone the end of this parliamentary term, right? 
And therefore, that what you're doing is banking on the fact that someone like Boris Johnson is going to deliver on the promises of Theresa May. And I wouldn't trust him to run a bath, let alone this country. So I, I, I and I do think they're quite effective. And, and, and the real difference I feel like anyway, comparatively to say six months ago, is that we've got really strong uh, Northern voices, Labour voices of Anna Turley, Bridget Phillipson, Phil Wilson, who are making some of those cases rather than what I do think, uh, not just People's Vote campaign, but kind of Open Britain and all things that came before have been guilty of, which is a bunch of Southerners and middle-class ones at that, telling the North what's best for them. Whereas it feels like that, you know, when you listen to Phil Wilson, you know that the man is based from where he's from and that he has his constituents' best interests at heart. Um there's also another part of this debate when we say we're trying to kind of pull people over to our side, and this is kind of kind of kind of nerdy anti-Brexit chat. But um, <laughs> the debate about the revoke Article 50 versus public vote sure. is that because that's kind of debate about ends and means, isn't it? Is mm-hmm. is is a public vote just a, a means to get to a remain position, or is the public vote about you know democracy? So th- this for me, I think, cuts to the very very core of why I back a people's vote and actually why, if you said to me, do you want a people's vote or do you just want to revoke Article 50? My vote would be a people's vote every single time because for me, yes, I support a people's vote and yes, I voted to remain. Yes, I would still like us to remain in the European Union. And I think a lot of people have got to be really honest about that in terms of where they come from. But it is also the understanding and that's where their democracy argument falls down fundamentally is putting it back to the same people who voted the first time and saying, is this a situation? This is what it is now. Do you still want to do it? Yes or no. And I also think there has to genuinely be, you know, if we were lucky enough to get a people's vote and we ran that campaign and sadly enough, we did lose. There has to be a situation where every single person goes. If we have like, there cannot be any more of this. There has to be like, okay, right. That's fine. We have actually just lost the debate now. And I think it is legitimate to say that there were so many unknowns. There was so much kind of corruption that went on. There was so much kind of bending of the rules and how it worked. And none of that campaign was conducted, I think, on a kind of fair play way. But also the kind of fundamentals of even that stuff. We didn't know what Brexit was. We never had it before. No one had ever done it before. We had no idea what it meant to try and untangle yourself from that kind of political and economic institution. And now we do know what that means. And there is a fundamental difference between voting on knowledge and the facts and the truth of the matter than there is on voting against something that is just a kind of figment and a campaign and someone's idea of what that might mean. And that for me is why it matters, because I think if you did just revoke, I think it plays everything into that narrative of betrayal. And we were we went out and voted and more people voted in this than had ever voted before and that is not insignificant we went out and voted and it plays more into the they just do not care about you and that's why for me that's where that kind of sits in that debate and it cuts to the very heart of it in terms of why it matters i don't know about you richard couldn't have said it better myself (laughs) well there we go (laughs) same here (laughs) um so looking ahead as well another thing that uh is coming up or that has already begun um, is the uh, Tory, how many kitchens have you got? Sorry, leadership contest <laughs> is what I, is the only way I'm going to call it now. I I'm am, like, I've got more kitchens than you. I think my money's on James Four Ovens Broken Shire. I thought that was that was a fun <laughs> week where the topic debate was out. James was getting burned by his four ovens. Yeah, but the thing that the thing that I noticed on it was that it, it was one of my. This is when Twitter comes into its own. But did you see on his four ovens he had a different time on every clock? That would drive me insane. I couldn't cope with it. 
I'd be like, how, how have you managed that? <laughs> I just, I just think that admin of four ovens is too much. Is me. it too I don't much? Know, I don't know whether I ever need to cook that much. <laughs> oh, I'd, you know, two. There's nothing wrong with two. If mm. I'm honest, it, that is like, if you're doing a roast and you need different levels of heat for different things, two ovens is the dream. Mm. I mean, I barely have one that works, yeah, but you know, so. that's where that's where we are. <laughs> my, my, my thing is, how, how do you clean them, right? And maybe we know the answer for this for like James Rokenchild, but like. Like a cleaning oven is an afternoon job, right? Like it's a proper piece of work, mm. and like doing like two or four. I mean, that would be that's a Sunday just gone. Like, I, I, it scares My favorite, me. No, I'm not gonna. I, this is the kind of thing where I'll, I'll fall into the little rabbit hole of when no longer anybody thinks I do anything fun anymore. And just look at ovens <laughs> on a weekend. I know that, but true. you can get ones that clean themselves. No. Yeah, that's a thing now. I have questions. You basically <laughs> you basically put it on, and it like it basically it gets so hot that it burns all everything off. It's wonderful. No one on this podcast came here for oven chat. <laughs> no, no. So we're well, like the wab, the bills, Brexit party, ovens. Okay, yeah. so let, let's let's try and segue into something more serious. Um, I think you know with what's happened with Donald Trump and what's happened around the world, the kind of thing of oh, I hope they pick the wackiest one because that one will lose. That is not an argument that any of us can. You know, we, won't, we can't. I can't sleep at night. You know, thinking about the possibility of you know some of those candidates who. <laughs> Who are we? Um, who are we most kind of concerned about in that sense? Who who would be worse for the country? Oh, such a tough one. <laughs> oh, is it, like I, I would pick between a couple. The obvious one is Boris Johnson. He's the most likely to win it. That's also why he's the most scary. Yeah, he's most likely to win it. Adored by kind of the Tory grassroots and the people who will kind of uh, vote for him once he if he does get to the runoff of the two MPs. Um, I, I think Dominic Raab is a understated, incredibly problematic human being. A man who um, loves to get rid of the Human Rights Act. He does love to get rid of the Human Rights Act. He's got all sorts of weird mm-hmm. politics on lots of things and is sort of one of those. Uh, at, at the thing I will say about Dominic Raab is that unlike uh, both Boris and the next person I'll say is at least he's been consistent and being quite horrific, whereas like Bojo at least pretended he was a bit moderate and liberal when he was London mayor for a bit and then swung back. Um, and then the final one is someone... Uh, like uh, Esther McVeigh or someone on that really proper ERG part of the party. Um, I I just think, aside from the politics of the people, if you think about prime ministers and where their power bases are, having someone whose power base is the ERG of the Conservative Party and having to, you know, and we've seen this with Theresa May having to fob to them for the last three years. I think that's, I I mean, I don't want to think about what sort of country that looks like. Steph, what about you? Yeah, I think pretty similar. I think, you know, as I say, Boris Johnson is the most likely to win. If he ever got through by CERN, he would win. Um, and for me, I think that is very terrifying. A man who, when he was foreign uh, foreign secretary, put the lives of British citizens on the line by the things he was saying. Um, and it is it is something, but it is something that, that could solidly happen. And I think, you know, we're going to see that play out. I think we're also going to see the thing I hate about any leadership contest in whatever party it takes place in, but particularly the Tory party seems to be pretty abysmal at it, is the bit where you get the wives rolled out. And it's the bit of like, we're going to do a splash now on all of the wives. And I'm like, what about all the women that will be running for this as well? Because there there are a serious number of female contenders in uh, in the Conservative Party that could also be the next leader. But I think, you know, the thing that will get scary for me is when you look at how far to the right the party membership have gone in comparison to even lots of the kind of conservative parliamentary party and how that works, it is going to be a race to who can kind of show more leg to those kinds of people. And I think for me, that is the worrying thing because actually like 
the fact I would like the Labour Party to be in power all the time is by the by. Sometimes it isn't. And actually what you've got to think of then is when it is not us, who else is it? And I would rather it be someone far more far more better you know far better for the country um than than the ability to do that yeah i think when you think about but i think it's highly unlikely yeah i mean take you know someone like matt hancock or amber rudd for example i think actually the benefit of people like that um running you know from our point of view one of the benefits is actually we can scrutinize them and pick apart some of the more detailed parts of their pol- policy platforms like you say that are more problematic and we can have that conversation we can also be honest about the fact that we'd feel much safer you know at night if it was them as opposed to Boris Johnson. But I think when you look at, um, I think Matt Hancock was uh, interviewed earlier today and, you know, asked to explain why he's polling at 1% in a leadership contest that he says he's not running in yet. I think, like you say, Steph, you, you really realise that um, I think the best way I've heard this put is this used to be a kind of fiscally conservative party with a nationalist fringe. And it is now a fully, you know, straight up xenophobic party with a kind of economically conservative fringe. Like that, that shift has happened. And I think, you know, that their leadership system is designed so that you can whittle it down to two candidates first. And hopefully, you know, you you have kind of some sensible ones put to the party there. But I don't, sorry, put to the party members there. But, you know, I'm not confident that that process is going to filter out these deeply problematic people. The thing is, there's, there's two other things that I would say on this. One is because of that shift in the party membership, no matter who it is, there are going to be some very, very frightening policy narratives and ideas that come out through this leadership contest. And that is something that everybody on the left is going to need to unite around in order to start countering that in a way that is not just nasty and vicious and personal, but really cuts to the heart of why those policies are so dangerous and actually starts to win some of the arguments with the country on that and how that works. And the other thing about it is though as well is look at the state of the country now because of internal Tory party drama. How bad is it going to get over the next couple of years if we continue to eat, you know, if they continue to eat themselves alive in the way that they do. And like we are entirely in this mess now because of internal labor, internal conservative party tension. And my worry is we have got another deadline coming up on the 31st of October, if I'm correct. Um, we could very, very easily see a situation where because of this and the extremities of which that could go to over the summer, you end up with someone who is the prime minister who thinks that no deal is a good deal for this country. And that for me is the most terrifying thing because it is not their constituents or their lives that are going to be damaged and affected by this. It is the lives of people across this country who will have their jobs ripped away from them, the need to rely on food banks even more and the ability to keep a house and a roof over their head put at jeopardy because of these people and their melodramas. And this is the reason why I understand why people get infuriated with Westminster. And it is when Westminster needs to sit and look at itself and say, this is what we are doing is unacceptable. Um, So that for me is the biggest thing in terms of making sure that does not happen. Uh, Although I'm not a member of the Conservative Party, so it's quite (laughs) difficult for me to do. Uh, I was just going to, just on the point that Steph made, which I think is really important when it comes to no deal Brexit, we all sort of got to a place as kind of uh, the country and kind of people involved in politics that uh, when it kind of, you know, and we've always known that Theresa May secretly doesn't believe that a no deal Brexit is good for the country, even though, you know, had to play the game within that and has been kind of beaten with her own words a number of times since then. The problem that we're going to have after that um, is that basically what's going to happen is we'll probably have a no deal Tory prime minister. Absolutely right. And no deal does become a very credible proposition because as many times as people can say there is no majority in parliament for no deal, which is entirely correct. The reality is that when you have a prime minister, your singular goal is to get to that point. it It just does become more likely that we could end up 
kind of falling over the no deal line. And I think we should start getting worried about that again quite quickly. Well, if uh, I ever heard a speech to motivate people to <laughs> go out, go out and vote um, this Thursday, I think that's the one. I think when you when you really tie back all these really kind of scary trends and possibilities to the one thing that we have that we can do to change all of this, which is to vote. I know <laughs> I'm going to be out there. <laughs> I hope everyone listening to this podcast is going to be out there and knocking doors if you have the time. Um, Steph, thank you, and uh, Richard, thanks so much for coming in, and you know, good luck with all the work you're doing in the future. Thank you. You've been listening to the Progressive Britain podcast. The music was One in the West by Blue Dot Sessions, licensed under Creative Commons, and many thanks for our fantastic and long-suffering producer, Caroline Crampton. Mm-hmm.